0: Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our study this Sunday is our second lesson, Philippians 3, verses 8 to 14. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, what is the goal of your life? If you hesitate to answer, that puts you in good company. Most people would probably answer with something like... Uh, well, I, I don't know. I, the goal of my life? I mean, I have goals, but I've never really thought about my life having a goal. Some particularly motivated people, of course, can give you an answer. They'll tell you that the goal of their lives is to be the best in their field, to achieve some great milestone, to make a certain amount of money by a certain point and have financial security, to survive some great challenge, to, or maybe even something like be a better spouse and parent than my parents were. Some of these goals are admirable and we happily encourage them. But there are other goals that people have that we might question or criticize because they are incredibly self-serving goals or because achieving them might require stepping on and hurting others in order to get what they want. If you had asked Saul of Tarsus around A.D. 34 what the goal of his life was, most would have considered it a pretty admirable goal. And what is more, he would have been well on his way toward achieving it. His goal was righteousness. And he had a zeal for holiness and the things of God that well really stood out among his peers. In fact, he was so well along toward his goal, even as a fairly young man, that he was confident that he had God's favor and eternal life in heaven Was his. It had to be, given how much more claim he had to it than everybody else did. From the very beginning of his life, he had the advantage. He was circumcised on the eighth day, precisely according to the law of Moses. He was not only born into the house of God's chosen people, Israel, but he, unlike so many of his fellow Jews, he could trace his lineage clearly back to the tribe of ben, his forefathers, to Benjamin. He was raised not as a Greek or a Roman or Syrian who happened to have a Jewish heritage or faith, but as someone who was proudly and distinctly Hebrew in speech, culture, and custom. And if that were not enough, and it wasn't, no one took the law of moses more seriously he was a pharisee of pharisees meaning that he was one of those jews who took total adherence to what moses gave his people in his book books as not as an objective but as a starting point they added rule after rule on top of the actual law of god because They thought it made them more righteous, and it kept them so far away from sinning that they'd never be guilty of anything. Saul excelled at this and was so dedicated to protecting their Jewish faith and and Pharisaic traditions that, that when a movement sprang up among their fellow Jews followers of a, a crucified carpenter from Galilee who who taught that a right status with the Lord is is all about trusting him for grace and not about strict performance of works and ritual purity. Well no one matched Saul in zeal. He not only opposed these people, he persecuted them in Jerusalem, in Judea and beyond arresting them, trying them, convicting them, punishing them. None of their blood or losses or cries of innocence disturbed him or or dirtied his hands, he thought. It didn't matter who he was stepping on, he was doing the Lord's work. And that just gave him more confidence that he was achieving his goal in regard to the righteousness that that came from observing the law of god as he saw it he had no doubt he was blameless and then he met jesus and he threw all of that confidence and righteousness away on his way to damascus to arrest some more of those rebellious jews who believed in their crucified messiah he was knocked to the ground with a brilliant light from heaven and the voice of the resurrected Christ who asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And though he was temporarily blinded by that light, he saw then, he saw in that moment That he had his goals all wrong, his righteousness all wrong, his confidence all wrong. Jesus was not his enemy, but his and all the world's Savior. And his followers were not rebels, but were the truly righteous. So he repented. He turned to Christ. He believed his whole life changed. Saul realized that his works, all the steps that he had been taking toward his goal of eternal life, he realized that these had actually been taking him further and further away from what was most important and what he truly needed. He changed his goal, not only what he was striving for, but how he was striving for it. Somewhere along the line, he also changed the name by which he was known. And as Paul, Christ's apostle, he wrote to the Philippians and wanted them to see the difference that had become so clear to him, the difference between self-righteousness that comes from the law and true righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. He wanted them, as the Holy Spirit also wants us, to have the same goal he did and the same attitude toward achieving that goal. So having listed all the things that once gave him confidence in the flesh, the idea that he could have a righteousness of his own, Paul puts all such thinking in perspective for us. Even more than that, I consider everything to be a loss because of what is worth far more. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Note that Paul has learned and wants us to know that that Christianity and salvation is an all-or-nothing proposition. From the moment of his conversion there on the road to Damascus, he came to view all those great advantages and achievements of his previous life as things to be left behind entirely, not as things to be carried forward with him into his new life. Now, the temptation is common and great to try to do grace and when you had so much to be proud of about yourself. But the Apostle wants us to also see that that's neither possible nor profitable. Knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior is so So, so much more valuable than anything any of us could ever bring to God and pretend has value. This knowledge is so transcendent and transformative that it compensates for the loss of everything else there is. And so Paul continues, For his sake I have lost all things and consider them rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God by faith. Paul has a new perspective and new priorities. All he wants now is what he does not have to work for, not because he's lazy, but because he realizes that to work for his own righteousness is a waste. A waste not only of time, but a waste of his life. The only gain that counts now is having Jesus as his Savior, as his advocate, as his shepherd, as his teacher, as his joy. And the only righteousness that matters is that which is given by the Lord at no cost to the sinner on the basis of faith. This truth is sometimes surprising. One would usually expect the message to be and and only be, leave your dark, ugly sins and guilt behind and believe in Jesus. But here Paul really isn't talking about sin. He's talking about the bright, shiny, beautiful words and deeds that we presume to offer the Lord as, as evidence of our worthiness for heaven. And he's saying that those things are what we must leave behind when we believe in Jesus. Our natural, fleshly spirituality says that that we should bring God our best to, to convince Him that we deserve His favor. But all He wants from sinners is our trust because we already have His favor. And the proof of that is Jesus Himself. Without our meriting it even one bit, even without our thinking to ask Him for it, the Son of God, offered Himself as the ransom price to set us free from our captivity to sin and death. We all were sinners by nature and sinners in thought, word, and deed, doomed to eternal torment and hell. But in love and in mercy, Christ took our place and took the punishment we all deserved and, and wiped out the stain of our guilt. When we trust in Him, in what He did for us with His suffering and death and resurrection, we find our sins forgiven. And, and even more than that, we find ourselves with the perfect righteousness of God's own Son credited to us as our own this is the lord's precious and gracious gift to us and we grab on and hold it tight with the hands of faith but our sinful natures always tempt us to also grab hold of other things to present to god as our own proof of merit look lord for the last three years, I haven't used any of those questionable calculations on my taxes. Give me credit for that. God, hey, I I know I haven't been exactly all that great at confessing my faith, but, you know, look how faithful my mom is. That should count for something for me, too, right? I'm not worried about my salvation. Because I know you like us best, Lord. We're Wells Lutherans. Rubbish all of it. Lose that. Lose those ideas. And put your faith only and entirely in Christ. Paul spells out why it's so important. I do this so that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in the hope that in some way I may arrive at the resurrection from the dead. Don't mistake any of what Paul says there for a lack of confidence in Christ. There is no uncertainty regarding our salvation or eternal life on God's end. He has done everything necessary and offers it freely to every sinner. But for us, every day dawns with with new challenges and, and fresh struggles between belief and unbelief, and too often there is uncertainty on our end. Things like weakness, faithlessness, impenitence, self-righteousness, and pride, not to mention the pressures and temptations of Satan and the world around us, these things intrude upon our hearts and minds, and our grip on Jesus and eternal life loosens. But God remains steadfast in His love for us, and the goal of eternal life stays before us because Jesus has already won it us. That's why Paul can can speak of knowing the power of Christ's resurrection. It is not just some fact of history that we confess in a creed, but it is the actual power to raise us from the dead on the last day. It is the power that gives the souls of believers life and a home in heaven until that day. And it is the power also to transform our lives this side of the grave. Because knowing that eternal life is already ours, removes fears, gives courage and confidence, changes priorities, and energizes our efforts to help and serve others. But the apostle also wants to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. That sounds absurd at first. Why would anyone desire pain and troubles like Jesus had? But Paul isn't saying that he seeks out suffering. Instead, his desire is that all the pains and trials and tribulations he endures because he trusts and serves Christ will connect him that much more closely and more strongly with his Savior who suffered first and most for us. The same then is true for us. Because every trouble and all persecution because of His name connects us more to Jesus, we consider it a privilege and a blessing to bear our own crosses in life, whatever they might be. And in doing so, we find ourselves more and more, like Paul, conformed to Christ's death. Not that we necessarily expect to die as he did, but that something is changed in us so that we think of and approach death as Jesus did, with confidence in the Lord's grace and with the certainty that eternal life awaits us on the other side. We should not be misled here by Paul's use of the word hope when he says he does all of this in the hope that in some way I may arrive the resurrection of the dead. Hope here is not something merely wished for or kind of maybe expected. It's instead something real that simply hasn't happened yet. Paul was not dead yet. So he certainly had not risen from the dead yet. But he had absolute confidence that he would. And it's the same for us and for all believers. We hope for the resurrection of the dead, not because we do not already possess it by the work and promise of Christ, but simply because we have not experienced it yet. And we don't know how or when we will die. Yet, we don't have to be in any hurry to do so even though there are some days when we might especially prefer entering eternal life to to living this one, we're not finished yet with our lives as God's servants and witnesses in this world. And neither was Paul. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus also took hold of me, Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it yet, but there is one thing I do. Forgetting the things that are behind and straining toward the things that are ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And here, Paul spells out how Christ's changing the goal of our lives changes the way we live our lives. The objective moves from striving to achieve our own righteousness, which will always fail, to being found with Christ's righteousness, given to us from God through faith. The apostle says that he presses on to take hold of that for which Christ also took hold of him. It is a single-minded, continuous pursuit of the righteousness that is by grace through faith in Jesus and the eternal life that secures us. He presses on and encourages us to press on toward the goal, toward the life and reality that is perfect and real but not yet experienced, which means that every day, Every day is a day to repent and seek forgiveness. A day to to trust more and trust more deeply in Christ. A day to determine in all one's words and actions to love God better and to serve one's neighbor as God's servant better. Not just to determine, but to do it. Jesus has given us a simple goal for our lives and it is one He makes possible. I want... My goal is to go and live in heaven with my Savior when I die. The vineyard owner in the parable we had in today's gospel illustrates for us just how far God will go and how much He's willing to sacrifice in order to get people to get right with Him. And He went even further in reality, giving His own beloved Son over to death and hell in order to make us righteous and cleanse us from our sins, all so that He could bring us home to heaven. Knowing all that, knowing what kind of God we have, knowing what kind of Savior has taken hold of us, and knowing what awaits us because of His undeserved and immeasurable love for us, How can we not imitate Paul in his attitude towards sin and everything that entangles? His attitude toward the works and fruits of faith that go with belonging to Christ. His attitude toward wrong ideas, false hopes, and futile righteousnesses. In his lifelong commitment to speak and act as a child and servant and messenger of God. We have the same Savior we have the same righteousness by faith, the same hope, the same goal. And so, like Paul, we forget the things that are behind and strain toward the things that are ahead. We press on, single-minded, continually. Not just one time, not occasionally when the mood strikes us, not just in the past, thinking that those long-ago strainings were sufficient, and not just sometime in the future when, when we are less distracted. We press on always toward our goal because the prize that awaits us at the end of our striving and faith is the call of God to heaven. And Jesus, our Redeemer, who secured it for us, is waiting there always waiting to welcome us home. So we exercise our faith and we press on because our Savior pressed on for us through death and into eternal life. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.